0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. dot net. Hey, church, how you guys doing? Doing good, doing good. Well, hey, while well, everyone's getting cozy, um, did everybody get a handout? We got a handout. I didn't I forgot to put pens out, but it looks like we got some pens at the back too. If you guys need those, and you will need those. Hey, if you're new, if you're just joining us, I just want to let you guys know uh, bathrooms are through either of these doors right here. There's coffee uh, in the back. It just kind of make yourself comfortable. This is um, our midweek service. We kind of just want it to be a little more like uh, we're just hanging out together, just getting into the, getting into the word and uh, more of a, a Bible study um, kind of approach, if you will. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on open to the book of Judges. That's towards the beginning still of the Old Testament. While you're doing that, uh, let me get you up to speed kind of on why we're, we're here uh, at the book of Judges and what we're doing. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Old Testament Overview uh, that just basically means what it sounds like. We are taking a zoomed out, uh, 40,000 whatever feet approach to the book, uh, to the entirety of the Old Testament. We're really trying to give you guys kind of the big picture of the Old Testament, um, I don't know if you guys are anything like me, you've probably approached the Old Testament different times, tried reading through it perhaps, maybe in some kind of a reading plan, or just jumped into a book like Judges, for instance, and found yourself just a little confused. Uh, What does this story mean? How am I supposed to read it? How does it fit into the big picture? Why does God seem like he's so mean in the Old Testament and so much nicer when he turns into Jesus? And what is the deal? Um... Those are some of the questions that people have when they read the Old Testament. And, and I literally think as I've been studying this, that those questions come up because we haven't really fully zoomed out to understand the full narrative picture of the Old Testament. And man, it's just been incredible um, taking big chunks at a time. So we've been, we've been taking one book a night, uh, which has been really hard, but really fun. And so I'm hoping that you guys will walk away tonight feeling like judges is something that makes sense to you now. Um, and uh, hopefully it'll just, it'll be really beneficial. So I'm going to pray. I'm actually going to ask you guys to pray for me um, because I need it. Uh, And I don't think anybody here wants to hear from me, uh, including me. I think everyone wants to hear from the shepherd. So let's pray for him to speak to us directly tonight, uh, and then I'll pray after you guys are done. Father in heaven, we're here because um, we want to hear from you. We're here because we love your word and we admire your word. We admonish, we lift high your word in our hearts and we want to submit ourselves under it. God, we're here because we want to learn about who we are and why we were made and what our identity is in you through the scriptures. God, we're here because we want to know what your heart is for us. We want to know more about who you are and why you do what you do. And so God, as we unpack and, uh, and, and dig into this book of Judges, Lord, would you reveal yourself in an entirely new way? And God, may we not be here just to gain knowledge, because Lord, knowledge is really not what we need. But may we be here to know you better, because you're what we need, Christ. So Jesus, make much of yourself through this. And Lord, push me aside. God, speak tonight directly. And may our hearts be ready and open to receive the life-changing truth of the gospel tonight. Let's pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The human heart is a vacuum. Okay? The human heart is a vacuum. There is no state in which it is not worshiping. So first thing I want you to write it down, write down somewhere on your paper, maybe at the very top, because that is going to be something I'm going to come back to over and over again. The human heart is a vacuum. There is no state in which it is not worshiping. This is one of the most important concepts and truths that we could understand as Christians and it's the key to understanding the book of judges is that sentence right there those sentences what i mean by the human heart is a vacuum and what i mean by that that vernacular that word vacuum is that it's an empty space but that it will not remain an empty space that something will at all times always fill that vacuum. There's no, there's no possibility that your heart is not at some time filled with something or worshiping something. Our hearts were designed, we're wired, we're created to worship our bodies, our minds, our spirits, our souls, our beings were created to be worshipers. And there's nothing that we can really do to change that. Now there's this myth in, in, in postmodernism in the culture that we're immersed in right now. There's this myth that, that, people are buying into that basically you can just choose to turn off worship. Okay. Like I'm just going to turn off any kind of religious system. Okay. Uh, what, what, what people are saying and what people are thinking in a lot of my peer group, a lot of my age, millennials and up even are saying things like religion and, and worship and things like that. They keep us close minded and we need to be uh, objective See, religion keeps us from being objective. So in order to stay objective about life, we just need to remove any kind of worship or religious system or organized religion from who we are. And and then we'll just be objective about everything. This is kind of the idea. So what what people are saying in our culture now is that we should just turn off the idea of religion and just turn off the idea of worship and just live. Live based off of what we think, live based off of what we know, live based off of what science has proved uh, supposedly to to show us. So it's really this this myth of what, if I can call it non-beliefism. Okay? I'm just going to choose to not really believe in anything. I'm not going to choose to really not stand on anything fully. I'm just going to kind of live my life based off of how I feel and what I think in the moment and what seems right. Okay? And, and we surround ourselves with lots of sentences and truisms that make us feel like we know and have a handle on what we really believe. But truly, we've just decided to sort of rule out the idea of God and, and live based off of what we feel and what we think. Now, the philosopher Charles Taylor, he, he rejects this idea in, in, in kind of a profound way. He argues that secular people, okay, secular meaning people that don't embrace the idea of God or, or don't worship God, okay, secular people are not more objective, but instead have embraced a new constructed web of alternate beliefs about the nature of things that are not self-evident to all. So what he's saying there is he's saying that if you say, I'm going to reject the idea of religion or reject the idea of ultimate truth or reject the idea of a worship-filled lifestyle, you've actually made yourself less objective. Because now you've just traded in one belief system for another. Instead of the belief system that has been given to you by an exterior truth, now you're turning to the belief system that you've produced within yourself. And now, as, as he puts it, you've constructed a web of alternate beliefs. So when you talk to someone my age that doesn't believe in the Lord and you press on some of their ideals, it gets complicated because they don't even know where they got their ideals. They don't even know where they're getting this sense of morality. I remember a conversation I had with a coworker when I worked in retail and he, he claimed to be, uh, in, in atheist, uh, but he was also Jewish in his, in his heritage. And I said, well, well, what determines what, what metric do you use to determine, uh, you know, what you do that's right or wrong? And he says, well, I live by the golden rule. And this was after, by the way, a conversation that we had had where he was rejecting the validity of scripture and saying the Bible's not true and you can't embrace that kind of stuff. And he said, but I live by the golden rule. I said, what's the golden rule? And he said, well, do unto others as they would do unto you. <laughs> I said, you'll never guess who said that, you know? Um, and then the conversation went on and, and, and he said, well, I just, I believe in the scriptures of the, I believe in the Jewish scriptures. And he all over the place. And I said, well, what is that? He said, you know, the, the, the Torah. And I said, oh, funny. Did you know that's the first five books of my Bible? you know, that you reject. And so I, I say that to say that, that people in our culture today, that, they don't stand on any real truth, but they sort of build for themselves or construct for themselves a complicated web of what they think is right or wrong based off of feeling, based off of science or whatever it is in that moment. But all of that to say that it is impossible to not worship. And it is impossible to not have a system of worship in your life. Tim Keller, he says this in... in In a book that I'm reading right now about preaching to to this postmodern culture, he says, in order to preach to the secular person, we must resist uh, secularity's own self-understanding. In other words, we must resist what our culture thinks that it is. So when we're reaching out to our culture, we're saying, yeah, I know you say (laughs) that you're a secular, and I know you say you have a secular understanding, but I actually reject that. I don't believe, so that's why I say I don't believe in atheists. I don't believe in atheists. They don't exist. There's no such thing. Secularity is not simply an absence of belief. So, so in other words, there is no such thing as someone that doesn't believe. And Tim Keller goes on in his book, he, he goes on to say that this is the problem with how we're witnessing, is we're witnessing to people like they're non-believers. So we just say little slogans and little isms like, hey, just believe, just believe. And they're saying, you know, no. The issue is they're already believing in something. They already have a system of religion. They already have a system of worship. That system of religion is defined by themselves. And typically, the source of that worship is themselves. Right. So we're trying to get people to believe they're already believing. What we should be doing as Christians is pressing on those beliefs and showing them what the truth in those beliefs actually is. The culture we live in today, now listen. The culture we live in today is not a culture of non-believers. It is a culture of idolaters. Okay? It's not a culture of non-believers. It is a culture of idolaters. Every human being that exists has three things. He has a belief system, what shapes and molds, why he does everything that he does. He or she has a God that they worship. Okay, even the atheists has a God that they worship. Okay, and we'll, we'll get into that. And thirdly, they have an altar to worship that God with something by which that they sacrifice to and for in that god no matter who it is that issue is not secularism it's idolatry it's idolatry now what is idolatry what is idolatry well idolatry is not some kind of ancient practice Okay? It's not like uh, the little guy on the shelf, maybe in some countries it is, and maybe in, and even in, in ancient Rome it was, and maybe even in the time of the judges it was. But today, idolatry isn't necessarily a little guy, a little golden statue on the shelf that you sacrifice a plate of food to like you see in the Thai restaurants. Okay? That's not necessarily what idolatry uh, is. Idolatry, as John Piper puts it, is the act of loving too much what ought to be loved less. Okay? It's ascribing more value to something that does not deserve that value. You're, you're making something into something it was never designed to be. That's what idolatry is. Now, this is important. Idolatry is not the system. It is the sickness. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. Idolatry is not the symptom. I typed it wrong. Symptom. It is the sickness. Okay? Uh, Kyle Eidelman, he says it this way, and he has a fantastic book on I- idolatry. And he says, idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Okay? It's not in a junk drawer of sins, you know, uh, uh, you know lust and, and greed and pride and then idolatry. It's not what idolatry is. He says, rather, it is the one great sin that all other sins come from. Idolatry isn't an issue. It is the issue. All roads lead to the dusty, overlooked concept of false gods. Okay, this seemingly outdated, tribal, ancient ritual of idolatry is not outdated. In fact, it's the culture that we live in is immersed in it. The, the heart, the foundation, the, the thing that births the sin in our life is actually idolatry. And you remember the story of Jesus having this conversation with this rich young man. And this rich young man, if you know the story, he was a, a pious young man. He was a charismatic man. He was a rich and affluent, a wealthy man. And he was actually quite a moral man. He comes up to Christ and he asks him this interesting question. He says, Master of rabbis, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus, um, who you know, was very perceptive and already knew by the spirit what was going on in this guy's heart. He says, well, what does the law say? And the guy responds, this rich young man, he responds by saying, well, the law says this and this and this. And he says, well, have you done these? And he says, yes, ever since my birth, I have followed the laws. And then Jesus sort of pauses and he, 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 he examines into the deeper parts of this guy's heart. Now from the external, this rich young ruler seemed like, hey, if anyone's going to go to heaven, it's this guy. I mean, he's got it all together. But Jesus saw past the exterior, and to the very foundation of what made this guy tick. And what he saw was idolatry. And Jesus exposed it because he said, okay, so if you want to follow me, if you would have me, if you would have eternal life, then go and sell everything that you have and follow me. And what Jesus did right there, it wasn't, this wasn't like a, a blanket statement, everyone has to go sell everything that they have. What it was is Jesus exposed the idolatry in this man's heart because what happened? He went away sorrowful. What Jesus exposed was that this man loved his stuff more than he loved Christ. That he made too much of his life, his possessions, and who he was. That is idolatry. Now, how does this tie into the book of Judges? Glad you asked. Judges is the book of idolatry. Okay, Judges is the book of idolatry. I think that's one of the questions in your handout. Maybe the first question is, what is the theme of Judges? It is the book of... Of idolatry. By the way, this is not meant to be like canned answers that, that like, there's not like a one answer for this. Okay, this is just like, write what you think that you're hearing from my sermon. Okay, some of these are, are, are clear answers and some of them are just a place to take notes and a place to answer the question. But that one, what is the theme of Judges? Idolatry is the theme of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is probably one of the worst snapshots of Israel. You ever have that picture where, like, you're just, you look worse than you ever have in your life, and someone just, like, took a picture of you when you were, like, this, like, from underneath, and it shows your double chin, and you're just, like, it's a terrible snapshot of you, probably the worst you've ever looked in your life. That's what the book of Judges is for Israel, okay? It's like bad picture day. So we are getting a glimpse today into the worst of the worst of the seasons of Israel's history. It's absolutely terrible. And the reason that Israel was in this terrible situation as a nation was not because of moral problems. It was not because of the Canaanites that they battled. The reason they were in the situation they were in was because of idolatry. Israel worshiped Pagan gods, as we'll see. And it led them into probably one of the worst seasons in the history of the nation of Israel. Wretched season. A terrible season. Once again, right? What did I say? The human heart is a vacuum. It will be filled. It will worship. It will worship whatever is presented and whatever is there at the time. The book of Judges is the people of Israel worshiping the people that they were living around. God's. Now, the book of Judges is not primarily about Judges, okay? It's named Judges because it is about the Judges, but it's primarily about the idolatry of Israel, okay? And it's also about how God redeems Israel out of the situation they got into by their idolatry. So it's a helpful book for us. So having said that, let's crack it open. Judges chapter one, verse one. And before I kind of give you the big flyover story of the book, I want to just draw your attention to a few verses specifically that are going to kind of help set the table for uh, understanding this book. And the first one is the very first verse of the book. I found it to be true in this series that sometimes the first verse of a book is so telling to what the entirety of the book is going to say. And in particular, this one here, it says in Judges 1 chapter 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So Israel is inquiring of the Lord. And and notice what they're asking. Hey, who's going to fight for us? Who's going to be our champion? Joshua dead. He was our general. He led us in victory. Um, the whole book of Joshua is about Israel, uh, you know, taking out the Canaanites out of their land, leading them in victory. Now Joshua's dead. And the first question they ask is, hey, who's going to fight for us? What's the problem with that question? Who did God want Israel to know fought for them? God, not Joshua, not any of the judges. Not Moses, not David in the future. God wanted Israel to understand that he was their champion. That's the whole book of Judges, right? Or Joshua. I'm sorry, the whole book of Joshua was Israel needing to remember that God was their victor. That they could either walk in victory or they could walk in failure. When they walked in the footsteps of their king. God himself, their champion, they were victorious. And when they didn't, they failed. And right off the bat, you see that vacuum here. Israel is ready to embrace anything and everything other than God. Who's it going to be, Lord? Who's going to fight our battles for us? Who's going to be our savior? Who's going to be our our redeemer? You know what that's code for? Who are we going to worship? Who's going to be the one that's going to save us? Who's it going to be? It's not, God, you are our victor. God, you are our Savior. Who is going to lead us in righteousness to you? That wasn't the question. That wasn't the question. Now, question real quick. Why did they need to be delivered? Didn't they take over the land in Israel? I mean, didn't, didn't, in the book of Joshua, didn't they come in and conquer the promised land? Well, no. They didn't. Look at verse 27 through 36 of chapter 1. I'll just read a little bit of it. It says, Manasseh. Okay, that's the tribe of people of Israel. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Te'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. Skip down to verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. So on and so on and so on and so forth. Verses 27 all the way through 36 is a list of the failures of Israel to do what God had asked them to do. And that was to drive out the Israelites completely. I'm sorry, to drive out the Canaanites completely. That was what God had told them to do, and they failed. If you remember in the book of Joshua, they start winning some battles and all of a sudden they're settling the land. They're they're, they're divvying up the land. They didn't finish what God had asked them to do. They just start getting right into living without actually finishing and completing what God wanted them to do. As a result, we have this fantastic picture, unfortunately for them, we have this fantastic picture of what it looks like for God's people to live in a pagan land. Where are we living right now? Okay, I mean, we have this great reality check picture of what it looks like for the people of God to live among a pagan society. Now, that wasn't God's intention. God wanted them to completely remove the Canaanites so that they could actually have the land and and be his people holy, but they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And it actually gets worse. Look at chapter two, verses one through three. It says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. This is the Lord talking to Israel. He says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall what? Make no covenants with the inhabitants of this land. Okay? He made it very clear. I don't want you to intermingle in covenants with the Canaanites. He did not want them to do that. He said, you shall break down their altars. Break down their what? Where they worship their false gods, where their idolatry lives. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns and your sides and their gods, little g, shall be a snare to you. What is he saying? He's saying, Israel, I told you, take out, the Canaanites completely and don't go into covenant with them because he says, if you do, their gods will be a snare to you. What is a snare? A snare is something that catches you, that restricts you, that holds you, that binds you, that brings you into bondage. He says, if you make covenant with the Canaanites, you will become like the Canaanites. If you make covenant with the Canaanites, you will worship the gods of the Canaanites and those gods will wreck you. They will ruin you because you were designed and called to be ruled by me. This is what God is telling Israel. But they didn't listen. They made covenants with the Canaanites. They married into the Canaanites. They became like the Canaanites. And this is a fantastic picture of what not to do in evangelism. Okay, we're called to be a light to the world. But there better be a delineation between us and the world. Okay, Israel was called to be a light to the Canaanites, but they weren't called to be the Canaanites. There has to be a distinction there. They became the Canaanites, and therefore the gods of the Canaanites became a snare. Now, how could this happen How do we go from Joshua, victorious, they're marching into the promised land, finally this new generation that has the faith to come in, the walls of Jericho are falling, and they're conquering territory, and they're this massive army that can't be stopped. All of a sudden, now here we are in Judges, and they're intermingling with the Canaanites. They're not doing what God had asked them to do, and things are going to go real bad from here. How did they get here? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 10. This is insightful into that question. It says, and all that generation, what generation? The generation that was in the book of Joshua. The generation that precedes the book, or the generation of judges. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, they died. Generation died off. And there arose another generation. After them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, that's pagan Uh, foreign uh, false idol gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So you have a new generation. But here's the question. Why does this new generation in the book of Judges not know about the Lord? Because if you remember... In the book of Exodus, God made a specific pattern for how the parents were to teach their kids who the Lord was. Feast days and sacrifice days. And and the great Shema, he says, bind it on your head. Put it on your door. Don't forget the Lord your God. And yet here's a generation that knows nothing of the Lord. What happened? The parents did not teach the children who the Lord was. And in one generation, you have an entire people group that has completely forgotten who they are. No sense of identity. No understanding of what they were called to do and who loved them and who made them. The failure in judges starts with the parents. Starts with the parents. It's a new generation. Now, knowing the nature of man, and this is scary to think about, okay? Knowing the nature of man's uh, vacuumous heart that will worship something... The reality is that your kids will learn to worship what you worship. Or even scarier, if you don't worship anything, they will worship whatever our culture worships. Okay, our, our kids will worship what they see us worship. So what does that tell us about the generation that raised the generation of judges? They weren't worshiping. They didn't love the Lord. Their kids had no clue. Their kids had no idea by looking at their parents who the Lord was. If you don't teach your kids who they are, our society will. And they will do a terrible job. There is so much bad thinking going on in this world right now that will inform your kids on who they are, what gender they are, what sexuality they prefer. We have to to inform our kids who they are. And who they are starts with the gospel, right? What your kids see you doing will inform what they see you worshiping. So when my kid sees me, I was convicted about this yesterday, when my kid sees me spending the majority of my time on my phone, my kid probably thinks that must be the most important thing in his life. Okay, now I might be reading a Bible and I might be you know, posting Christian verses to Facebook, but either way, our kids are watching And they're seeing what we're doing, spending the majority of our time doing. something to think about. Now, Judges in chapter 2, verse 16, gives us this really cool summary. If you want to understand the entire book of Judges, you go here. Chapter 2, verse 16 through 23. And I'm just going to read it. It's a chunk, but I'm going to read it. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the land of those who plundered them. going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has tr- transgressed my covenant that I command their fathers I have not, or, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did. So here... In these verses, you see a cycle that is repeated over and over and over and over again. If I had to draw the book of Judges, it would look like a big swirl. But that swirl goes in a downward direction. It's cyclical. The book of Judges, it's this constant cycle. And every time it cycles, it gets worse. And the cycle looks like this. It starts with idolatry. They're worshiping the wrong God. Okay, and then idolatry inevitably leads to sin. As we said, idolatry is the, is the sickness and sin is the symptom, right? Idolatry would lead to sin and their sin would then lead them into oppression, which means the Midianites or the Canaanites or the Jebusites, whatever, any of the ites would come in and oppress them and God would allow it because it was truly their idolatry and their sin that, would, that, that led them into those situations, and then after they were oppressed for a certain amount of years, they would feel sorrowful and they would repent and say, Lord, help us. We've been held captive by these whatever because of our sin and because of our idolatry. So then God would bring a judge, okay, a deliverer into the scene, into the story to deliver Israel, to, to set them free. Then they would have a season of peace. And then guess where they are at the end of that cycle, right back into idolatry. Nothing brings idolatry more than seasons of peace, right? If you don't believe me, look at the last 50 years of our country. Peace brings idolatry because it causes us to lose sight of what's really important. So Judges is this constant, continual cycle. But with every cycle, it gets worse and worse and worse to the very end of the book, which is probably one of the worst stories you will ever read in the entire Bible. Okay, that I, I literally am, I don't even want to share it with you guys, but I'm going to. This book gets worse and worse and worse, and every leader that comes gets worse and worse and worse, and this is the cycle of the book of Judges. Now, really quickly, this is in your handout. What is a judge? Okay, I should do, to determine that a little bit. Uh, I remember being a kid, reading the book of Judges, or hearing about the book of Judges, and picturing like a, you know, a dude with the, the white wig and the black gown, you know, sitting with the gavel. I'm like, what? Why, what, why is there a book about the judges? You know, wouldn't that be like the Levites? Like, no, these aren't judges like you'd think of, like a courtroom type of judge. Um, I like the way that Tim Mackey says it. He says these were regional, political, military leaders, more like tribal chieftains. Okay, these were guys that were generals. These were guys or gals that rose up to free Israel from, ter- uh, from, from. Uh, the reign of foreign governments physically. So they were champions. They were uh, warlords in a lot of ways. They were like tribal chieftains. They were temporary leaders that God would raise up. Now, it's important to understand as we examine the behavior of some of these judges that God did not necessarily embrace or endorse these judges. Okay? God used these judges and caused his spirit to come onto them and make them strong for certain things and for his purposes. But he did not necessarily endorse the behavior of these judges. That's important to understand. So now let's get into the book, the, the, the bulk of the book. Here, here's the best way to kind of grab this book, okay? Because it's a, it's a big one, a lot of chapters, lots of stories. We're not going to be able to get into all of the details and the minutia of it. But there's basically six judges, Okay, there's basically six judges, there's more than that, but there's six that the book really takes the time to unpack and explain their story. Okay, so six different cycles of Israel getting into bondage, going into repentance, God sending a judge and delivering them, six different cycles. The first three uh, are in chapters three through five, and those are kind of like short, epic tales of deliverance, okay, where a judge would come and would conquer and. The, the author of Judges doesn't really go into a lot of detail about um, what all they did, but they're just kind of these fast stories. And, and like I said, the book gets worse, okay? So the Judges in the beginning aren't too bad. By the time you get to the end, they're terrible, okay? Uh, the first one is named Othniel, okay? Othniel. We don't have a whole ton about him, but we do know that he delivered Israel from the Mesopotamians, okay? The Mesopotamia, that's Othniel. And then we have Ehud, Ehud's in the second half of chapter three, and he delivered Israel from the Moabites. And then Deborah is the third one, and she delivered Israel from the Canaanites. And again, these are just short, sort of epic, intense, bloody, graphic, terrible stories, okay? That if we were to watch them on a screen would be rated R, okay? Uh, They're very graphic. And just to give you a, a couple examples of that, in the story of Ehud, Okay, uh, if you've read this before, you know where I'm going. Okay, Ehud uh, basically came when the Moabites had inv- and invaded. It says that Ehud was a left-handed man. Okay, and so he, he crafted a sword. He put it on his right hip, which apparently in that time, if you, if you were right-handed, you drew from your right hip, and if you were left-handed, you drew from your left hip. So no one really knew that he had a sword there. He found his way into the presence of the king, whose name was Eglon. Okay, now Iglon, it makes a very clear point to say in the book of Judges, was a very fat man. He was obese, large, 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 the guy they got to like pull out the window, you know what I mean? Kind of thing, can't fit through the door, so he, he probably wasn't very physically fit. Um, so Ehud finds his way into the presence of this guy, Iglon, and he says, hey, I have a secret message for you from the Lord, so I need your guards to leave. you think he would be onto him, but whatever. You know, hey, can your secret service leave uh, you know, we just need, we need to talk, you know. Um, anyways, so his, his guys, his secret service, whatever, they, they leave. He goes up to, to tell uh, this, this fat King Eglon the story. He pulls his sword out and he jabs it into the belly of this fat man. And he's so fat that the, the actual hilt, I'm not making this up. Okay, The hilt goes all the way into, and probably his hand, into the belly of this man. The fat over and closes. He pulls it out, and it says literally that his dirt came out. Okay. You can probably put that together, what that is. Okay. His bowels were loosed all over the ground. Just morbid, just graphic, gnarly stuff. This is the book of Judges. Okay. Uh, and then we get another one in, in Deborah. Okay. So Deborah is this judge that was raised up to deliver Israel from the Canaanites. And as she's doing so, she chases the, the colonel, or the general, pardon me, with his 900 chariots, the general of the, uh, the Moabites, and his name is Sisera. She chases him, he's on the run, he's running for his life, and as sister is running from Deborah and the, and the Israeli army. Uh, she comes to this, this tent where this woman named Jael uh, is there, and he says, will you house me? And she says, yeah, sure, come on in. And so Sisera, this, this general of, of this pagan people, he comes in, he, he lies down on the floor, he goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, she comes with a tent peg, okay, and don't think like this, think like tent peg, and she drives it into the man's temple and kills him by driving it into his head, basically. Okay, so it's graphic, okay, it's gnarly. I mean, this is, this is the book of Judges. This is the reality of human life. When I said in the intro to the Old Testament that the book, uh, the Old Testament is rated R, this is what I'm talking about. Okay, now like, why would God put that? It's so morbid. We should, why, I mean, can we put clean flicks on the Bible? Like, no, this is real life. Okay, the Bible doesn't come with clean flicks. The Bible is real life. God wants us to see clearly depicted what mankind does when mankind is left to himself because we have to understand that to understand our need for grace, our need for salvation, Amen. Okay, so it's real life. Then we get into the second three judges, and these three judges are much more intricate. These three judges, they have much more, probably like two or three chapters each on these guys, so a lot more happens. And the first one is Gideon. I'm not going to get into him much because we're actually going to come back and look at him a little bit more at the end. But Gideon was an okay dude. And he wasn't the greatest of guy he was kind of a coward he was kind of a wimp uh, he had a really hard time believing that god was actually going to help him he kept testing the lord over and over like god if if you really want me to do this then do this and then do this and it was like this this kind of wrestling with god and of his cowardice to want, not really want to believe god that he could do it some would say he's humble i'd just say he was kind of a wimp um however you want to look at it. But that was, that was Gideon. He did some good things. Um, God used him eventually after much deliberation. God finally used him to deliver Israel uh, from, who was it, who was it, who was it? Can't even remember. One of the ites. Um, to deliver them with only 300 men, which is a pretty epic tale you can go and read about. So he was an okay guy, but he was also a very bad guy. Okay? He started out okay. He ended really bad. Just like all the judges. Because you see, after Gideon freed them from uh, the Midianites. You guys are on it, man. Um, after he freed them from the Midianites. It's right there in my minute Look at that. Uh, he ended up making an idol. And that idol, it says, became a snare to Israel. So even though he saved them from idolatry, ended up snaring them back into idolatry because he was a bonehead. Now, they wanted to make him king. One good thing about him is he said, no, I don't want you to make me king, but instead I'm gonna make this golden ephod. And then they ended up worshiping the golden ephod instead, which was just terrible. Then his son Abimelech serves a violent three-year reign as Israel's king after that. And his tyrannical reign ends when a woman literally throws a millstone on Abimelech's head, which is gnarly. Um, so that's Gideon. Okay. Then after that, they're pressured by the Philistines from the East and the Ammonites from the West. Uh, and because of that, Israel is desperate for another judge. Okay. Gideon is, is over with. They need someone else to come in and deliver them. So they turn to this other guy named Jephthah. Okay. Jephthah is the fifth one. If you're writing these down, Jephthah, uh, and, and Jephthah was kind of an interesting guy. He, he, the good thing about him, he was a tough dude. He, 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 was, he was a very uh, skilled military leader. He was, he was good at what he did. The bad thing was he was kind of a sketchy guy, okay? He was born of a prostitute and was forced out of his homeland as a child to be raised and live in a, live in a land called Tob. And Tob, as the Bible literally says, was full of worthless fellows, okay? worthless fellows. Um, so you can imagine that it was pretty, pretty rough growing up. This was a rough and tumble guy. Okay. Um, uh, now the problem with Jephthah is that he's completely unfamiliar with the God of Israel. He doesn't understand how God works. So he approaches the God of Israel, like he would a pagan God, like he would the God of the Canaanites. And what he does is he said, God, if you make me victorious over, uh, these, who is he fighting? Who is he fighting? Anybody? The Ammonites, okay? If you make me victorious over the Ammonites, then I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house, okay? Now, that's not how God works. Can I just say that? Okay, that's like mystic. That's, that's like text, book, pagan worship. God will kill, he was probably hoping it was a stupid dog, right? He's probably like, oh, that, my wife has this dog. I can't stand it. Like, okay, so if, if, you know, if we go to battle, God, hopefully the dog will come out and kill the dog and won't have the dog anymore or something, or maybe it was a cat, can we go with that? Okay, he hit a cat. He, he was hoping it would be a cat. Well, it wasn't. He goes off to battle. He's victorious. He frees Israel uh, from the, uh, man, the ites. Can I just call them the ites? There's so many ites. Okay, he frees Israel from them. He comes home, and guess who comes out? His daughter comes out. Now, he should have said, no way. Because God in no way, in no way is God for child sacrifice. But this dude was raised in Tob by worthless fellows. And he has this approach to God that is not right. So he does it. And his daughter encourages it to sacrifice his daughter, which is terrible. It's a horrible story. Horrible story. And again, this is textbook Canaanite worship. Child sacrifice. If you ever, when you read the prophets, if you want to know why they're so irritated, why God sounds so irritated all the time at Israel, it's because this is the garbage that they were living in. They were sacrificing their kids to false gods, and God was not having it. This is the kind of stuff that they were ensnared in. This was the thorn, if you will, that, that, uh, that the author of Judges is talking about, that God says, You're going to be snared by these things. So the Philistines continue to oppress Israel. Uh, the angel of God appears to, uh, after, this is after Jephthah. The angel of God appears to this ch- uh, a childless Israelite couple. Okay, and, and to this couple, he promises them a son who will become Israel's next deliverer. Anyone know who that was? Samson, you guys are on it. You guys should be teaching this to me. Uh, so Samson is the next judge. And Samson was, uh, was, was famous and is on all of our flannel graph boards when we were a kid for being just super strong. Okay, And, and he took the Samsonite vow. Because God said that he was going to be the next deliverer, his parents took that seriously. He took the Nazarite vow. His hair grows long. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a strong guy. Now, Samson was also a complete idiot. Can I, can I say that? Okay, he's a complete idiot. He's not Jesus, so I can say it. He's an idiot. Just like me okay um, Samson was 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 a promiscuous, a violent, an arrogant, a prideful guy. okay He did a lot of stupid things the first, he tried to take two, not one but two philistine wives okay uh, so so exactly what God told him not to do the first one. Ends up betraying him, making him look like an idiot. And because of his pride, he ends up losing her. The Philistines give her to another, uh, Phil- another person, marry her off. And then he takes another Philistine wife. He doesn't learn his lesson. He takes another Philistine wife named Delilah. okay, And Delilah ends up costing him his life. And he's such a, a, a buffoon that he even knows what she's up to. And he still lets her do it because in his pride, he thinks, oh, nothing can touch me. She ends up cutting his hair. He loses his strength, so on and so forth. And then he becomes the laughingstock of the Philistines. The only good thing Samson really did was at the very end of his life, when he's chained to two pillars and his eyes are gouged out, he says, he, he, his hair grows back out and he, he, he pulls down the, the, um, the, the temple of the Philistines, destroying the Philistines in himself. Okay? Um, but not a great guy. Can we be honest? Not a great guy. None of these judges were great. None of them were the deliverer that Israel needed. It's the toilet bowl thing. I was talking to Jeff about this. He's like, yeah, it's like the toilet bowl. It's like the cycle of a toilet bowl, is the, is the book of Judges. Like it's going round and round in cycle, and it's just getting further and further into the sewage. Into the sewer. That is the book of Judges. And then it gets even worse. I gotta speed through this, so if I'm talking fast, I apologize. Chapters 17 through 21 is the illustration of how bad Israel got. Okay, now chapters one through 17 is the illustration of how bad the leaders got, being the judges. Chapters 17 through 21 is the illustration of how bad Israel got. And that happens in two different scenarios. Uh, One of them, chapters 17 through 18, a guy named Micah. Okay, Micah builds a personal altar to a pagan god. He's an idolater, okay? A private, personal temple. Then the tribe of Dan comes and plunders this personal temple. Uh, and then after that, they go and they go sack and burn a peaceful city of Laish, okay? So just crazy, rampant. Uh, you know, you guys ever seen that movie, The Book of Eli? That's the book of Je- like talking like wild west stuff. This guy's building an altar to a pagan god. The dance come up. They steal everything out of there. They sack the place. And they go sack a peaceful city called Laish. I mean, it's just like, it's just this constant, terrible cycle of sin. And then you get to the worst. I, I, I think I could say this with confidence. Probably the worst story in the entire Bible. Probably the worst story in the entire Bible. And this is what bookends the very end of Judges. Now, before I say that, all throughout these stories, God is continually saying this phrase. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay, this is like, he's like peppers all throughout these stories, constantly saying, hey, they have no king, and they're constantly doing what is right in their own eyes. And that leads to the lowest point probably in Israel's history. And in chapter 19, we find a story about a Levite, okay? What were the Levites called to do again? To be in the presence of God? To take care of the tabernacle? To sprinkle blood on the mercy seat? And we find a Levite with a concubine who's traveling, and he stops with his concubine in a city called Gibeah. Now, Gibeah was, in, was, was a city of the Benjamites, and they end up staying, him and his concubine end up staying with this man who is just uh, from out of town as well. And he hosts them for the night. So they, they stay with him. And in the middle of the night, the, the Gibeonites, some of the Gibeonite men come to the door. Now this is this is gnarly. I don't, even, I don't even want to talk about this. But it's there, okay? They come to the door and they say, we want to sleep with this man. Okay, so they're homosexuals. They want to sleep with the man and, and, and just promiscuous, gnarly behavior. The guy that answers the door says, no, I can't do that. That's terrible. So here, take his concubine instead. He even offers his virgin daughter to them. Okay? So they take his concubine. They sexually abuse her all night long until she dies. And the next morning she comes back to the house to her master. And by the time he wakes up, she's dead. As if it's not bad enough. This Levite man takes her body and cuts it into 12 pieces. And he sends each piece to each tribe of Israel, which is terrible. But what he was doing is he was showing Israel, guys, this is how bad we've gotten. This is how terrible and debase our idolatry has made us, that this thing would happen. And the only redeemable part of this story is that Israel is outraged. And they come together and they join up against the Benjamites and they come demanding those men that did that and they would not give up the men. So that single event triggers this huge civil war where they basically hand the Benjamites their tail, okay, for what they did. How did we get here? I mean, how did we get here? From this, 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 this triumphal entry into the promised land with Joshua and the Ark of the Covenant leading the way and the Ten Commandments fresh on their mind to this debased story which triggers a civil war between brother killing brother. How did we get here? Idolatry. Idolatry. They, it started, it all started by them worshiping pagan gods. It all started there. Now, what I want to talk about quickly, and it took way too long to get through all that, <laughs> what I want to talk about quickly is God's method for removing idolatry. And let me just say something really quick. You can't get rid of idolatry in your own heart. You can't. God will, okay? And you can help him. <laughs> but God is the one and the only one that can remove idolatry. And uh, removing idolatry is a process of layers, is getting down to the very deepest parts of your heart. The first thing that God does, if you're taking notes, there's six things. Uh, The first thing that God does in in removing idolatry is he allows us to see the bondage and to feel the bondage from the idolatry. Okay, he allows us to feel, uh, I'll I'll use an example um, through all these, I'll use the example of Gideon, okay? Uh, in, In Gideon, God allowed Israel to feel the pressure of slavery and under the Midianites, that, that they were overcome and overtaken and oppressed. So when we make an idol, God allows sometimes the pressure and the pain of that idol to affect us, because sometimes it's the only way that we'll wake up. It's the only way that we'll realize that we have a cancer inside of us, namely idolatry. In Judges 3, 4, God says they were who uh, the Canaanites were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. In other words, God left the Canaanites there, okay, in his purposes to remove this cancer from Israel. He used the bondage that was produced by idolatry in, in, in order to remove it. Because remember, the bondage that you feel because of idolatry is just a symptom. Idolatry is the sickness, the bondage, the weight that you feel, the guilt that you feel, the struggle that you feel, that is simply the the, the symptom, okay? So first he lets you feel the bondage. The second thing he does is, is he destroys your altars. Now, in the story of Gideon, the first thing Gideon does, you know, is he, is he comes and he, in the middle of the night because he was afraid, he, he goes up and he pulls down the altars uh, of these pagan gods. And the next morning they wake up and, and they're furious. They're so mad that Gideon pulled down their altars. Now, that, that kind of tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us that, uh, that obviously they were in idolatry. How do you know when you're in idolatry? Well, when your altar gets removed, what's an altar? Okay, the altar is the thing by which you worship your idol. Okay? When it gets removed, you get mad. You get mad. You don't like it. When our altars get removed, we get mad, we get frustrated. Tim Keller said, A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. You know it's an idol because when it's gone, you feel crushed. And you don't know that you can continue to move on. The second thing it tells us is that they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were worshiping the right God. And that's the other interesting thing about idolatry, right? Is sometimes they're good things. Like, what do you mean my kids are an idol? What do you mean my spouse is an idol? What do you mean the church is an idol? What do you mean theology is an idol? What do you mean friendships are an idol? Those are all good things. Yeah, as Mark Driscoll says, when you take a good thing and you make it a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. Okay, when you take something out of its rightful place and put it into something it was never intended to be, it becomes idolatry. And the worst idols are good things. And when their altars got torn down by Gideon, I guarantee they felt piously, justifiably angry. Who are you to tear down our idols? We're trying, to be the, we're trying to be religious, we're trying to be pious, we're trying to be moral, we're trying to do the right thing. No, you're worshiping pagan gods, and you don't see it, okay? So God sent something or someone into our life to remove these altars. Now, I have to delineate to you guys. There's a difference between the idol and the altar, okay? You have to understand this. There's a difference between the idol and the altar, the idol is the thing that you actually are sacrificing to. The altar is just the means by which that you're doing it. And we get those two confused. Let me give you an, an example. Uh, money, okay? Money's probably the go-to thing when you think of idolatry, right? Oh, that guy's in idolatry to money. But I would say money is more than likely probably an altar thing. Money isn't so much the idol as it is the, the, the altar. It's what you use to sacrifice to your God. So for instance, money by, might be how you worship your image, I need money so that people think that I'm successful. Well, that's not worshiping money. That's worshiping image. Or money might be the idol on, uh, on which you worship control. If I don't have money, then I don't have control. If I don't have money in my savings account, then, oh, no, everything's going to go terribly. You're worshiping control, and money is your altar. Does that make sense? Or money might be how you worship pleasure. Okay, Pleasure is what you want, and you sacrifice money to get pleasure. Does that make sense? So there's a delineation there, a perfect example of this. My wife is reading a book by a, a gal named uh, uh, Joni Erickson Tada. Joni, yeah? And she's a paraplegic Christian woman, author. And, and in this book, she talks about how she was in idolatry to all of these things in her life, spending time with friends, physical things, all of this stuff. And then even when her body was completely removed from her and she couldn't even you know, take a shower or dress herself, she was still in idolatry how? Because in her mind, she was still worshiping the idea of these things. Okay. It's like, like Jeff mentioned it the other day. It's like, it's like these people in Africa that worship money, but they have none. How does that work? Okay. The money is just merely the altar. The idol is what money can buy you. Right. Does that make sense? So having said that, The next thing God does is he allows us, after tearing down our idols, is he allows us to understand what our idols are, okay? He allows us to understand, and what I want to do with you guys in this paper that I gave you is I want to try to help you identify identify what these idols in your life might be, okay? And I'm going to ask you either to circle the ones that pertain to you or write them in and to fill in the blank. Now, don't feel embarrassed because I circled like 12 of them, okay? Out of 20, I like circle, tw- so don't be like, oh no, someone's going to look over my shoulder and know I'm an idolater. I'm an idolater, okay? Like times 12, so you're good. Um, but I want to help you guys try to understand some of the, the the sneakiness of idolatry. That it's not always as present and clear-cut as you might think. Now, again something like money, for instance, you have to press through and figure out that there's something deeper behind there. So I'm going to go through these quickly, and I just want you guys, again, just circle the ones that you think might be pertain- pertaining to you. This is by uh, Edmund P. Clowney. He's a, a fantastic. Uh, he was actually someone that mentored Tim Keller, who I'm a big fan of. Um, he gives us this help- helpful metric. So the first one is this. It's power idolatry. Okay, power idolatry. And he frames each of them like this. He says, uh, life only has meaning, and I only have worth if. Okay, if every one of them, he says that. So life only has meaning, and I only have worth and power idolatry if I have power and influence over others. Life only matters if I have power or influence over others. Okay, I circled that one. I'm not going to tell you every one I circled, but I circled that one. As a pastor, this is a huge point of idolatry for me. I need to feel like I'm influential. I need to feel like I matter. I need to feel like my sermons are doing something. I need to feel like my ministry is doing something. Uh, That's a huge point of idolatry for, for me. Leaders in general probably struggle with that one. Number two, approval idolatry. Okay, life only has meaning or I only have worth if I am loved and respected by whoever. Okay, I only feel like life matters. I only feel like life is worth living if I'm respected by that person or those people. Comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure or experience uh, in a particular quality of life. So I will sacrifice anything for my comfort. Control idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth and I'm able to get, if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of you fill in the blank. Okay? Helping idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. Okay, I think that one's big for moms. I think moms struggle with that. Their idolatry is needing to be needed by their kids. Well, what happens when your kids move out? You call them every day in college. (laughs) Hey, how you doing? (laughs) My idol is you, you know? I mean, this is a big one. We need to be needed. That can be an idol. Dependence idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. Independence idolatry. This is like teenager written all over it. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. So, okay, my idol is freedom. Don't ever tell me what to do or you're threatening my worship system. Number eight, work idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm highly productive getting a lot done. Achievement idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments, if I am excelling in my career. Materialism idolatry. I only have meaning, I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, very nice possessions. Religion idolatry. If I'm adhering to my religious moral codes and accomplished, and accomplished inactivities. Individual person idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if this one person in my life is happy and happy with me. Irreligion idolatry. Racial cultural idolatry. Inner ring idolatry. You guys can go back and read some of these later because I'm running out of time. Family idolatry. Relationship idolatry. Suffering. This one was interesting. Suffering idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm hurting in a problem. And only do I feel noble or worthy of love if I am suffering or dealing with, helps me to deal with guilt, basically. That's Eeyore syndrome. Okay, that's Eeyore syndrome. My idol is feeling like I'm suffering for someone else and poor me. Okay? Love to tell people my woes. That's suffering idolatry. Ideology idolatry and image idolatry. Okay, I'm only happy if I look a certain way, if people look at me a certain way, if I see myself a certain way physically. Okay, now, if, if you didn't circle one of those, you're lying. Okay, you're lying. This is the sneakiness and the foundation of idolatry. This is the source of 99% of what we do in sin, what we feel in insecurity, what we feel in struggle and hardship in life is because we're worshiping the wrong God. Worshiping the wrong God. Here's a couple examples of what this might look like you have a rebellious son and a controlling mom, they're both worshiping two different idols. The rebellious son is worshiping the idol of independence and idolatry. He's worshiping the independence idolatry. My God is being free. My God is doing whatever I want. My God is being in control of my life. And my God is the comfort idol. I want to be comfort. I want to play video games. I want to eat Hot Pockets. I want to wear sweats to school. That's my idol. Okay, comfort and independence. And then you have mom and her idol is control. No, 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 no. You wear what I say you wear and you do what I say you, you do this and you do that as control. That's her idol, right? And her idol could also be approval. I need to be approved by my son. You see what's happening there? It's two worship systems in conflict. Or another one. You have a needy wife and an absent husband. Who is the needy wife worshiping? She's worshiping dependence idolatry. She needs her husband. He is her God. He is how she finds everything she needs in life. And she's worshiping approval. And he is worshiping work and independence. He finds his worth by working. And so they're conflicting because they're worshiping opposite gods. Does that make sense? I'm gonna have to skip a whole time here. One last thing. What happens when God removes our idol? we end up worshiping the thing that removed our idol. We end up worshiping the thing that removed our idol. In the, book, in, the, in the story of Gideon, they try to make Gideon their king. They want him to be their idol now. Since he solved their problem, since he was that thing or that person that removed that idolatry from them, that suffering, that bondage for them, now they want to make Gideon their king. Okay, you're it, Gideon. So God has to essentially allow Gideon to be seen for what he is. Now, this is exactly what we do. And listen, this is, I'll, I'll close on this. This is exactly what we do. We're in idolatry. We feel the bondage of it. We're pressured. So God brings something or someone into our life to free us from that idolatry. And once we're freed from that idolatry, we usually make that someone or that something our new idol. You know what this really looks like? Uh, movements of God. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about Calvary Chapel, but that's one of them. The Reformed Movement. Man, in the Jesus Movement, I got saved, and it was so great. Praise the Lord. Man, God used the Jesus Movement. But they're worshiping the Jesus Movement. Man, Reformed Theology. Man, I found Reformed Theology and Calvinism, and man, that just pulled me out of idolatry. Praise the Lord. Now you're worshiping Calvinism and Reformed Theology. Oh, no, this church over here. I mean, at that church, God freed me from my idolatry. Okay, now you're making that church your idol. There's so many different things. It could be a person. It could be a spouse. It could be a lover. It could be someone, anyone in your life that that pulled you out of that. Be careful that they don't become your new idol. Whatever that could be, even a situation. Well, you just need to send them to this because that's what fixed me, right? No. God is our deliverer. That is the point. And here's the big point. The book of Judges ends... Sort of leaving you wanting, doesn't it? Because here's God bringing them through this cycle and through this cycle and through this cycle, but you notice what's not happening? Nothing's changing. Why? I mean, He's delivering them, He's raising up judges, but yet the next cycle, they're worse. They're worse. There's an it factor missing in the book of Judges. Do you know who it is? Jesus is missing. The book of Judges is testament to the fact that we cannot remove our idols on our own. We have to be given a new set of desires. Because even if I take down your altar, and even if I wreck your idol, if your heart still loves that idol, nothing changes. So God set them free from the Moabites. So God set them free from the Canaanites. So God tore down their idols. Why did they go right back to worshiping pagan gods? Because they still loved them. Because they still love them. The good news of the gospel is that God does not just change us externally. He changes us internally. He rewires the core of who you are so that the cycle that we go through looks more like the one we looked at last week. Failure, repentance, failure, repentance. But it's not a cycle down the toilet. It's a cycle up to him. It's a cycle that swirls its way through failures and receiving grace up to one day being in heaven with God forever because we're reborn. Because we're not Israel in the book of Judges. We are new creations. We are sons and daughters of the most high God. And so do we still have idolatry? Yes. Is God dealing with the core of it? Yes. That's That's worth saying thank you to the Lord for Thank you, Lord, that you are dealing with the core of our idolatry. That you are reaching your hand through the muck and mire and the layers of sin and bondage in my life and dealing with the real issue. Not the external stuff that I'm trying to fix, but the real issue in our heart. And making our love turn towards him. That's good news. Let's all stand, guys. I gotta apologize. I was supposed to be done 10 minutes ago and I just... We we're, we're trying to make it a little shorter tonight. It didn't work out. So um, next week, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. You guys aren't going to want to miss that book for sure. It's a killer story. A little bit shorter, which is nice. Um, yeah, anyways, let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, that you are at the helm of our lives, that you are in our hearts even now, removing and working out idolatry. God, that you are steering our affections towards yourself continually. Lord, I pray for heritage, God, that we would be those that see uh, you as our ultimate joy, as the greatest good that we could ever have, Lord. And we thank you for the book of Judges, God, that it may be a sobering reminder of what life looks like living in idolatry. And God, may it draw us to you and to Christ, Lord. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.